This week on New Mexico in Focus, as the election looms, so too does the future of thousands of dreamers. Author Michael Olivas explains. They're marrying our students. They're representing our, our people in court. They're members of our community. We need them. Plus, a conversation with the recently ousted head of the Bureau of Land Management as drilling near Chaco Canyon hangs in the balance. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. We're fortunate to have two fantastic interviews this week that give you a much deeper look into federal programs that impact New Mexico's places and its people. We also have the line, of course, with a discussion about New Mexico's census count and the looming deadline as COVID continues to throw a wrench into all facets of life. We begin with what's been an active week at the top of two major law enforcement agencies. Here's the line. Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition for Friday night, October 2nd of 2020. And what a memorable week it is. It started really on Tuesday with the first of three scheduled presidential debates. That was unlike any debate I think most any of us have ever seen before. Not much on decorum, not much on substance. And then later in the week, the shocking news that President Trump has been diagnosed as COVID-19 positive. So that may have impacts on the future debates, uh, just to say the least. A lot of things that still have to be figured out. We will no doubt get back to all of that. We've got a lot on our election specials and election coverage. I'll tell you a little bit about that more later on in the show. But let's kick into gear with the line. You heard it in the open there. We have got some special guests with us on the line this week. Regular Laura Sanchez. Joining her is Merritt Allen of Vox Optima and Dave Mulryan of Everybody Votes. And we wanted to start this week with the shakeup in law enforcement agencies in the state. Of course, it was a couple weeks ago we found out that the Albuquerque police chief, Mike Geyer, was going to retire. He is in retirement now and uh, feels as though he can share a little bit more of his story, thinks he was not treated fairly and forced out. His story made lots of media attention this week as he uh, kicks up some of the dirt uh, or uh, dirt behind the scenes within city government here in Albuquerque and some of his grievances with the mayor, uh, Tim Keller, and his administration. At the same time, we found out that uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham was letting her Secretary for the Department of Public Safety go. That's Mark Shea. And a lot of this, there's really no way around it to say that feeds into police reform, uh, calls for police reform that stem from Black Lives Matter protests and other protests we've seen uh, in the wake of the death of George Floyd and other high-profile police shootings all across the country. Uh, it's a complicated issue. Uh, we've talked a lot on our show about how leadership plays a role in that. It feels as though leadership, and we know leadership changes are coming. Uh, we'll get more information, I'm sure, in the coming weeks and days about what that looks like. But right now, let's get some more thoughts and opinions on all of this from host Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. When Albuquerque Police Chief Mike Geyer left his job last month, there was a lot of reading of the tea leaves. Rumors swirled he was on the outs. Then a testy city council meeting questioning his authority drew a rebuke from the mayor's office, which apparently asked him to leave just a few days later. Meanwhile, just last week, the governor mysteriously fired her secretary of public safety. The line is getting into it this week. I'm joined by line regular and attorney Laura Sanchez. And we also welcome line guests, one of my favorites, Dave Mulryan. He's founder of Everybody Votes. And another favorite guest we always like to see is the owner of Vox Optima Public Relations. That would be Merritt Allen. Now, after getting elbowed out of the press conference announcing what Mayor Keller tried to spin as a well-timed retirement, Mr. Geyer has been making the media rounds, including a big interview with the journal in which he blasted the mayor's office for micromanaging. And Merritt, the mayor's office says it's sour grapes. What's your initial takeaway from this whole back and forth we've got going here? 
My, my gut, and this comes from, I've spent my whole career working uh, in government as mm-hmm. um, uh, both a, a member of the military and as a contractor. And you have executives who are either very much focused on um, their, uh, their office and their legacy, or they're focused on the organization. And I think very much we have an executive who's focused on his office. And loyalty, I think, may be more important than um, uh, results or operations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think we can see certainly one of Geyer's complaints was that he was micromanaged. I think if we look at the types of press conferences, the type, the way just communications were handled with the public, it was certainly micromanaged. And I think it would be fairly easy for a deputy chief um, who uh, perhaps was not in agreement with his direct boss, the chief, could certainly make an end run to the mayor and say, hey, if you want somebody who's going to tow your line, Mm -hmm. I'm your guy. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, that's how I see that maybe playing out. Yeah, yeah. Laura, pick up on that. You know, the idea is always politics with everything, because again, these are appointed positions, not, you know, elected positions that the chief you know, should we have seen this coming in your view? And now it's easy to connect the dots now, but should we have, was it super obvious we just all just missed it a, a, a little bit ago? I don't know that, that we could have foreseen it, but I think yeah. in that position, um, and, and that's true for the next person who comes in as permanent chief or any others that may come in in the foreseeable future, as mm-hmm. long as we have a, um, a Justice Department decree here that we're being managed and, and looked at by the feds, that position is going to be under a microscope and mm-hmm. everything that that position does, any administrative decisions are going to be scrutinized differently. And as with, as with any job, I mean, I think we all know there's a, there's an important aspect of managing down. In other words, you manage your staff, but you got to manage up, you got to manage right. your managers. Right. And so if, if you know that a big priority um, for any executive, um, you know, any mayor is going to be, public safety. And, um, you know, that's an area that's particularly important. It's maybe a, a, an issue during the campaign, which I think it was in this case, mm-hmm. you're going to have to have a certain amount of, um, of trust built up. And so I think that that, that may indicate more of what was going on. Um, I don't perceive that. And I don't know, I don't know firsthand at all, but it didn't seem to me like um, Chief Guy was particularly, um, you know, focused on that aspect of it. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, good managers often focus on the work at hand and they're looking, you know, sort of down at, at not down, but they're, they're looking to manage their staff mm-hmm. uh, and not necessarily aware of the, kind of the bigger implications. Um, and ultimately those positions are appointed. So the, the executive can make a decision. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that it's going to be a tough position no matter who's there. Dave, you know, when you think about it, um, as I read it, I should probably start uh, that. You know, the, the mayor's office is spinning this really hard. I mean, really hard. There's all this list of grievances about the chief, you know, was, was unavailable. He just wasn't, you know, on the scene enough. He wasn't, I, 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 I'm not reading all this saying, I don't know, all sounds like fireable offenses, but a long time ago. Right. Does, does it make sense right. what you're hearing from them? Well, it doesn't make any sense. And I think that in some ways, you know, when you look at it, like, the federal crime statistics say that there's never been less crime in the country. We've done very well managing it. But I think that one of the problems that we've had, that we have, that the police department has, that the mayor's office has is we are under policed. I was actually talking to the chief once at a, an event, and he said if we had a similar amount or the percentage of um, population to police that they had in New York, which is considered, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the safest city in the country. We would have a police force that was three times large, three times larger than it is now, and so we have about a thousand police. That would wow. mean we would have three thousand police. And for whatever reason, even though federal crime statistics say crime is down, yet people feel unsafe. So we clearly have a perception problem. And it's you know it's interesting. The mayor is fighting with the police chief and firing him, yet. The average American, the average Albuquerque citizen is saying, 
I feel like I call the police and I've had a break in and they don't show up. And so, you know, whatever the, the problem is between the chief and the police and the next chief, they're putting out a nationwide search. They need to really say to the constituents, look, we understand the crime problem. We are going to fix it. We're going to do these things. Mm-hmm. Winston Churchill was famous for saying during World War II, never waste an opportunity, never waste a crisis. It's an opportunity. Rahm Emanuel sort of did that in 2008. He adapted the same. And I think that that we clearly have a crisis. I mean, you know, we are on fire with COVID and everything else. Maybe use that opportunity to really have a change of heart and a change of policy and how we look at policing in Albuquerque. And and even, you know, clearly the governor is getting involved by by being unhappy with her public safety director. So Mm -hmm. like now may be the time to sort of throw out the book and do something new. Mm-hmm. Speaking of public safety, uh, Secretary uh, Merritt, Mr. Shea, Mark Shea, has been let go. He is the eighth person at that level to either leave the administration from one reason or another. We don't have much explanation, however, from the governor about what happened there. Do, do you have you heard anything? I, I got nothing. Like what's what's going on there? Um, no, no, like you, I've uh, I've got nothing, and that's yeah. uh, certainly you know an indicator, and that's something that. That's been a trend uh, uh, for the the last 20 years. Some of this comes with the Executive Powers Act. Some of this comes just as a trend in government communications, which is um, Mm -hmm. press conferences, do not answer questions. um, And also the role of the public information officer or the public affairs officer has dwindled uh, to nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, There Mm -hmm. used to be... um, uh, you know, the principles of information, fair and free flow of information. Mm-hmm. And the way I was trained is you respond to um, a media query within 24 hours or preferably by their deadline. You find out what their deadline is. And if it's same day, you respond um, by their deadline. So they have time to file their story. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you, the response is, I can't respond, you give them an answer. Why? Like the matter is still under investigation. We don't want to um, I prejudice the investigation. What has become the norm and what we accept, and by we, I don't mean just the media, but we as citizens accept is um, we allow our elected officials to say nothing and to stonewall the media and to be silent. And I mm-hmm. think we really need to stop that. Yeah. Um, we've got, uh, uh, because people are pressuring the mayor more and he's a, a slightly different character than the governor. He is trying to spin it. Um, I, I don't know that uh, he's being particularly uh, successful. Uh, the governor uh, seems to feel, as her predecessors, both uh, Martinez and Richardson, uh, seem to feel comfortable in their power. Uh, I, I don't think we'll find out uh, what right. has happened with uh, 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 the Secretary of Public Services, much as we have not found out about the other cabinet members. That's true. But Laura, you know, does the governor not have some responsibility to talk about this? I mean, she has the right to change her cabinet secretaries. No one's arguing that. But shouldn't there be a bit more than this for the public? Um, well, you know, I, I think that this administration has been focused quite a lot on the COVID pandemic and a response to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in the case of the health secretary, um, you know, anything related to health right now would have been extremely important to make sure there was more information provided. And I think we were told that uh, the pandemic was taking taking its toll on the secretary and um, she wanted to move on and, you know, so oftentimes when people don't comment at all, it could be something that's, um, that's personal in nature. You know, it could be some, I mean, there's any number of reasons why somebody could have been um, dismissed. It isn't necessarily just that the governor or, you know, whoever the executive is, has a reason, um, but the, the person may have potentially done something wrong. And so right. you don't, in a personnel matter, you don't want to discuss those things, especially mm-hmm. if there's any potential for a lawsuit down the road. So it's always a sticky situation because you don't want to get into <coughs> private details and open yourself up to a potential lawsuit. I mean, we yeah. wouldn't want to see you know, money true. spent on litigation um, unnecessarily. So, you know, it is a little unusual. I think that so many cabinet secretaries have been, um, have left. Uh, I, I would expect that it's for a variety of reasons, but it's also a really tough year. So people mm-hmm. make personal decisions um, based on where they are at that particular time. And, and we're seeing this pandemic and the economic circumstances. It's not like people in state government get paid a lot. Mm-hmm. So they may also be moving on to try to find something that's more in line with what they need to do for their families. So, I mean, 
I think they're they're saying what they can right now. I'm not right. sure they're able to say anything more. Fair enough. Fair enough. Hey, Dave, you know, the one clue we do have from the governor is she says she wants a more of a focus on community policing, uh, civil right. rights. There's a new commission, of course. I, my sense is she's trying to stitch all these things together to make to make a right. you know, you can't do one thing and not have this other end of it. Not, you know, cooperating. Right. Is that good enough? I think it's good enough, but in okay. some ways, too, I think we have to give the governor some credit. Mm -hmm. You know, the governor was elected a couple of years ago. The world was completely different than how it is now. She kind of told us right out of the chute when she got rid of the education secretary. She is going to be an activist governor. And if something's not working, she's not going to say, oh, let's see if it works out. She's going to make changes. And I think that's actually good. Franklin Roosevelt was very clear. He tried something. If it didn't work, he got rid of it. He tried mm -hmm. something else. I think we are in a world, and the state has done pretty well in controlling the COVID epidemic. And I think she's just not willing to sort of maintain the status quo. She is willing to take the hit. She maybe is a little bit too silent on all of these things. Yet, I think if she's moving around her cabinet secretaries, they serve at the pleasure of the governor. And it is her prerogative. And I think that she is really pushing. She wants results. She comes from the Washington culture where they try to get things done assumably. Mm -hmm. I think it's good. I think she should put all cabinet the cabinet is on notice. You know, don't if you don't do your job, if you don't communicate with me, you're toast. I mean, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to be one of them. It's a little nerve wracking. But, <laughs> you know, but also I think the governor tries to communicate directly with us via Twitter. You know, she's a very strong presence on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, I might suggest that she listen a little bit more to the uh, communications professionals like Merritt made the point because, you know, there is a way to communicate it. You can, I don't know that it's always just spin. I think the mayor also should have better professionals around him because eventually everything comes out. You know, we will get some point. notice or else right. if you don't put out the story, there's a story that comes along that people begin to believe. So you may as well just take the hit in the beginning, say, I did it for this reason, because even if people don't agree with you, at least they know what you're thinking. Good point there. We'll have to leave it. Well, I'm sorry, we'll have to leave it there. More to come on both of these jobs, which are often a lucrative capstone to police and careers, no doubt. After the break, we're talking DACA and the DREAM Act with law professor Michael Alivas. Much more with the line coming up a little bit later in the show. I want to switch gears now, bring you a really fascinating interview that uh, correspondent Russell Contreras sent our way. And he sat down with, um, he's a New Mexico native. Right now he's a law professor at the University of Houston, Michael Olivas. And uh, he has written a book all about the history of the DREAM Act and DACA students. It's called Perchance to Dream. It's a fascinating look at how we got to a point where the DREAM Act was passed, uh, which led to the DACA program, which is under fire right now by the Trump administration. They are not accepting new DACA applicants, although they are renewing uh, current ones or taking their applications, at least, as the courts continue to hear about complaints on or cases, arguments on both sides of the aisle on this issue. But right now, we want to give you some of that history and uh, the great work of Professor Michael Olivas uh, from the University of Houston. Here is correspondent Russell Contreras. Michael Olivas is a native New Mexican who spent a career focused on immigration and immigration law. He's a professor at the University of Houston and also the author of a new book on the history of the DACA program and the DREAM Act. It's called Perchance to Dream. Correspondent Russell Contreras, who's known Olivas for years, sat down with him via Zoom recently to talk about the history behind his book and what's ahead as we hurtle towards a presidential election. Professor Olivas, thank you for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you um, joining us to talk about your new book here. Thank you very much. I'm always glad to appear on my favorite local PBS show. Before we get into your um, book about the DREAM Act and DACA, take us back to what was going on in the 1990s. At the point in mid-1990s, late 1990s, we have the largest number of uh, undocumented college-age uh, students who are entering higher education. What's going on and what are they facing? Well, they're facing about three different kinds of disabilities where they're leaning into the headwind. The first is that in a number of states they're considered non-residents, even if they've lived there since they were children. 
Normally it just requires 12 months to become a resident, but because of their immigration status, a number of states had held that they were uh, non-resident if they were eligible at all. Number two, when they were in their courses, they found that they were ineligible for most financial aid, whether it was state and certainly federal aid. And this was at a time when tuitions were increasing substantially. Uh, when I started at the University of Houston in 1982, tuition was $4 an hour. Uh, so it had increased to hundreds of dollars an hour by that time, uh, even in the states such as, Col as California and Texas, which were historically low tuition states. And then third, of course, they found uh, inability to have work authorization, so they couldn't hold jobs. If they were trained to become a teacher, trained to become a lawyer, trained to become a doctor, they couldn't get licensing in those areas. And so uh, to, to some extent, attendance at college is driven by your choice of employment. So if you want to be a, a reporter, you might have some television classes, you might take some writing classes, you might take some some oratory classes and so forth. But then if you can't be hired uh, on the books, then it becomes very difficult. And so all of these were sort of three strikes and you're out. At the same time, states, rather than the federal government, were starting to pass laws that allow these students to go in at a reduced rate rather than international students. What's going on in places like Texas, Kansas, New Mexico? A number of states had begun to make a move in large part because uh, uh, there was a movement to rewrite some of the residence requirements. Uh, just as an example, the very first one was passed in Texas, uh, ironically, because that's where Plyler versus Doe had occurred. And so Texas has long been considered hostile toward Mexican-Americans and Mexicans generally. But they were the first state, and you may recall Governor uh, Rick Perry, when he signed it into law, got beaten up when he ran for president twice. Uh, and, and so, he, he, to his credit, he did this and not only uh, signed it into law uh, in 2001, just before 9-11, but he also, several years later, signed in financial aid for these students. He saw that educating these students was much better for the state of Texas than simply leaving them on the outside with whatever uh, non-traditional means may have been available to them. And so uh, a number of states started doing that. And once once that started, and once California got its uh, act together and had litigation about the matter uh, that resolved the issue, uh, and in my book, I, it, was a, it was about a 15-year struggle because there were cases way back in the 1970s uh, about this. In fact, there were organized efforts by these students. Uh, even though uh, we knew that California and Texas were the most important states with regard to the total number of hours uh, that they would take overall, they, both states became very progressive in this issue. Although Pete Wilson, when running for running for governor, uh, was responsible for Proposition 187 and um, was considered very nativist and restrictionist. Uh, but he, after he left office, after running for president, uh, sort of overplaying his hands because he was considered too restrictionist, uh, California finally got its act in, in gear. And now you can even take out student loans and and, uh, and so forth in, in California. So uh, about 25 states now, I haven't looked in the last month or so, but about 25 states have such uh, on the books. And there are three states that still say, if you're undocumented or even documented, you cannot even attend college in Georgia, South Carolina, and a couple of other states. So uh, for the most part, the states that we're concerned about have these residence requirements. The one absentee example is Arizona, which has remained a nativist state uh, and, and uh, to this day doesn't allow their students uh, in-state tuition. You mentioned Pete Wilson, the former governor of California. I remember talking to you in 2001 when I was a, an intern at the Wall Street Journal. And what was interesting then is that Texas had passed a bill that allowed uh, undocumented immigrants to take, go to school in in-state tuition. But California under a very liberal governor and a liberal legislation did not. What was going on in the debates where you had a conservative Texas allowing this to have to occur in California and some of these more progressive states, even Massachusetts, being resistant to this idea? Well, uh, Gray Davis, in, in fairness, followed um, 
the, the nativist. Uh, uh, so he, he ended up settling it. He was a Democrat and he, he took over uh, after uh, the conservative uh, administration left. So uh, th these terms of liberal and progressive uh, versus conservative are very fluid. California now clearly is irretrievably uh, liberal, but it wasn't so at the time and resisted uh, even, even then. Whereas, as you point out, ironically, Texas um, did. But it also shows how a governor who is committed to something can get it through. He, uh, he got beaten up uh, in Texas for years, but he held his ground because he, he knew he was right. And eventually the legislature changed and became uh, much more uh, inclusive and had a lot of Latinos and, and black uh, legislators who uh, backed him on this, even if they didn't always back him on everything else. As for Massachusetts, I think it was the, the small number that you would have thought ironically would have greased the skids, but they simply saw that th this was a, a source of income that was uh, going to be uh, substantially lowered. The problem is, of course, if you charge these kids full tuition, they can't go anyway. And so it's sort of all or nothing. Give them lower tuition. Uh, and and Minnesota is another good example. Minnesota did the same thing, but they gave free tuition to everybody. So that, that wrapped up uh, immigrants as well, even though there aren't that many in, in the, uh, the area, all these undocumented Canadians up in Minnesota. Uh, but uh, every, every, the funny thing is every single state has its own backstory and they're quite fascinating. And I tracked down many of them in my book uh, and just length considerations meant that I couldn't uh, include them all. But each one is a variation on a theme of people who didn't know much about these students saw them as a threat. In your book, Perchance to Dream, A Legal and Political History of the DREAM Act and DOTCA, you talk about the formation of what will become known as the DREAM Act. How did the idea of a federal DREAM Act come about in, in the midst of all these states passing these various uh, bills for in-state tuition? That, that's really the, the very best question. Um, and the answer is that tuition is always set by states. And if you're in state, it's always set by states. You can't have a federal rule for determining who's a member of the Texas uh, uh, community. But at the federal level, what we were looking for uh, with the early drafts was, with, with some luck, work authorization, so it would regularize their status. We were also hoping, of course, for a fast track to permanent residence and then citizenship, which was in some of the early drafts. Uh, but more to the point, eligibility for federal financial aid. Because even though setting tuition and charging tuition is a state level decision, the provision of financial assistance is, a, is largely a federal one with Pell Grants, uh, work study, loans, uh, other kinds of uh, programs under Title IV. And they were ineligible for all of those. They still are, by the way. Even when DACA came about, as generous as it was, it precluded them from having federal uh, eligibility for Title IV uh, programs, the nature of which I've already mentioned. When DACA comes around uh, during the Obama administration, it comes amidst this failure to pass a DREAM Act and after a, a, a number of, of deportations that his administrations took part and faced criticism for. What happens uh, when DACA comes? What becomes of this legal status of these new um, students, these undocumented students, and where does this put them in terms of U.S. history of this gray area of as residents, as um, people walking around in this country? What happens to them? Well, uh, the first DREAM Act had been introduced in Congress in 2001, co-sponsored by Senator Ted Kennedy, the liberal, and Senator from Utah, Orrin Hatch, a conservative. And I took bets at the time <laughs> that I lost. I ended up having to pay dinner at Nympha's for many people uh, over time, having lost that bet, that this the, the fact that they had two bookends like that meant uh, a guaranteed passage. Of course, uh, 10 years later, it hadn't uh, passed. And so in 2012, uh, President Obama had ramped up, he, he had ramped up all the, the kinds of border uh, control and deportations. In fact, many of my colleagues called him the deporter in chief, which I always refused to do, because I knew what he was trying to do was to remove people who, who were usually multiple offenders who uh, 
didn't have many of whom also had 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 criminal records, even though they were sometimes just simply being undocumented was was enough. And he he uh, removed four hundred thousand a year, which was more than any president before that time. And I thought he was doing so in order to build up his street cred with uh, nativists who might say, "Well, he's serious about that. Let's try and regularize the status of these students." And what they did was they they gave them several different benefits. I'm just going to call them general benefits, although they were still ineligible for all federal financial assistance. In that sense, it's always been the same. But they were given work authorization, the ability to work um, either during school or after they finished their programs. Uh, and that, that, of course, kicked them into a whole series of occupational and licensing issues that we could talk about. Um, number two, it gave them a social security number. And so uh, that rendered them eligible for any number of things. Believe it or not, in some states, if you have uh, a, uh, a degree in law and a social security number, you're eligible no matter what your, your immigration status is. So that's, that, that became sort of a backdoor. And then it also gave them the most important thing, which was considered lawful presence. It's not the same as lawful status, which, which is an immigration term. The lawful presence meant that their deportation clocks were stopped and they could not be deported without the burden of the government having to prove that they were uh, removable. And so it gave them due process. And they could continue this for, for two years and then renew it as long as they stayed in status. And uh, they could even leave the country and come back in under a concept called advanced parole, where if you have permission to return before you leave and you don't do anything to, to screw that status up, then you could come back. Now, uh, that, that works fine. In fact, it's a model program that paid for itself. Uh, on the fees. Uh, in fact, a number of uh, nonprofit organizations and individuals started putting together uh, pools of money to pay for the $500 uh, per renewal uh, for, for these students. 800,000 of them uh, became documented and had eligibility for that particular set of benefits. Very few, by my count, and I really did try and keep count of this, only a couple of dozen ever uh, were lost their status by, by virtue of, a, uh, they couldn't have a, a felony, of course, but they couldn't even have serious misdemeanors. So if you had a, a drunk driving or something like that, you might lose your status. Or if you left the country and didn't have advanced permission, you might lose it. Or if you flunked out of school. The beautiful thing was that most of these students were really great students. And, and in Houston, your hometown, uh, I know that in one year, 12 of the salutatorians and valedictorians in the Houston School District were undocumented. This was before DACA. So these kids were pent up. It was a force. And who would have thought that 800,000 would come forward and had this been continued and not rescinded by, by the uh, Trump administration, we'd have well over a million of these kids now moving forward. We have dozens who are doctors, dozens who are lawyers. In fact, during the DACA litigation, uh, the second time in the Supreme Court, uh, an affidavit was filed showing that 20,000 of these students actually were in essential healthcare positions as doctors, nurses, and other licensed professionals. These are winners. These are the kids that you want to, to become immigrants because they all speak English. They're all educated in our system. Plyler versus Doe assured that they would have access to K-12 education. They're marrying our students. They're representing our, our people in court. They're members of our community. We need them. Professor Olivas, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Another interesting interview coming up for you here, partly because of what all is going on around the person at the center of this interview. Uh, William Perry Penley was, in effect, uh, the interim director of the Bureau of Land Management for about the past year, and he recently visited New Mexico, toured around Chaco Canyon and some other places around the state. He's the deputy director for programs and policy. That's his official title. And after we did the interview, just a day or two after the interview, the uh, courts said that his um, interim status as head of the uh, Bureau of Land Management was invalid because it hadn't been approved by the Senate. He is still with the BLM. We don't know a lot about who's running the BLM now, 
But this interview that our correspondent, Laura Paskus, did with William Perry Penley is still a fascinating look at land management, thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres throughout the Southwest that are managed by the BLM. Uh, And as we mentioned before, around Chaco Canyon, sacred sites, it is a complicated and complex situation. And again, this is a really interesting look at how Someone in a place of authority with the BLM thinks about these things, prioritizes these things, and sees his role in uh, taking care of our most precious uh, lands and sites here in New Mexico and beyond. Here now is Laura Paskus and our interview with William Perry Penley. William Perry Pendley, Deputy Director for Policy and Programs at the U.S. Bureau of Land Management, came to New Mexico recently visiting places like Chaco Culture and National Historical Park. He spoke with correspondent Laura Paskus about his vision for the agency, which oversees 700 million acres of land in the West. The day after this conversation, a federal judge blocked Mr. Pendley from continuing as the agency's de facto acting director, a position he's held since July 2019 because the Senate hadn't confirmed him. That calls into question his authority to make past decisions. The Trump administration is appealing that ruling, and Mr. Penley remains at the agency. Deputy Director Penley, you've essentially been the acting director of the BLM since July last year. What's your vision for this agency? Well, uh, Laura, I hate to correct you uh, at the get-go, but my proper title is Deputy Director Policy and Programs exercising the authority of the director. I know that's sort of a a long thing, but it's a legal thing to say, hey, uh, that's uh, the basis upon which uh, I get to sign documents. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously uh, the media likes to shorten it to acting director, but technically I'm deputy director policy and programs exercising the authority of the director. It's been a real thrill to be here. I'm delighted to uh, work for the the Trump administration and uh, and Secretary Bernhardt. Um, and it's I've just been so impressed with the Bureau of Land Management and their employees. Um, I travel all around the country. I did a lot before the virus hit and then after the virus hit, uh, I tried to step it up and that's what I'm doing today in New Mexico. Um, I, I think the number one issue for me when I first got there obviously was to move the headquarters to the West. We had 550 employees positions in Washington, D.C., uh, 99, you know, Laura, you're the expert, uh, as well as I am, 99.99% of the Bureau of Land Management lands are in the West and Alaska. Uh, most of our uh, employees are here, 97%, but we still had our leaders in Washington, D.C., and the desire was to put the leaders out to work hand in glove with the people in the field, to learn from them and have the people in the field learn from our leaders who had the Washington DC experience. And at the same time, put our people on the ground so that uh, they could make better decisions earlier in the process. Obviously, I've got to say wild horse and burrows. Uh, We have 95,000 wild horses and burrows uh, on the public lands. It's not compassionate, it's not humane for those uh, uh, those icons of the American West, and it's terrible for the land. It's destroying the land. It's bad for indigenous, uh, indigenous species, endangered species. It's not good for our neighbors. Uh, so I don't want to handle that. And obviously, number three, I'd have to say is fire. Uh, we're going through a, a remarkable fire season. It's not, it's not record setting. Uh, a lot of people are surprised by that, but we got 30, 30 some thousand people in the field fighting fire right now. Uh, but that's a huge issue for us. We have a professional firefighting organization, and I'm proud to lead it. And I'm just so impressed with the men and women who are on the fire lines today. So you have worked in government before, but you were also president of the Mountain States Legal Foundation for about 30 years, I think. Why did you want to work at BLM, come back to the federal government, especially after challenging federal agencies and policies for so long? Yeah, Laura, that's... uh, uh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I basically spent my whole life in government. Uh, I was uh, obviously a student, and I was a Marine. Uh, I was a Marine for almost five years. Uh, then I went to Washington. I worked on Capitol Hill. I worked for the U.S. Senate. I worked for the House of Representatives. I worked for what was at the time the House Interior Insular Affairs Committee, now called the House Resources Committee. 
Um, so I know that side. And then uh, the Reagan administration came in. Uh, Secretary Watt asked me to join him, and I did for a number of years. Uh, I practiced law for about four years in the Washington area, and then for 30 years, three decades, I led the Mountain States Legal Foundation in Denver. Uh, it is a nonprofit public interest law firm. It's like the ACLU or, I don't know, Earth Justice or any other uh, public interest law firm. I represented all sorts of people. I represented uh, ranchers, uh, miners, loggers, uh, people engaged in oil and gas activity, climbers, hikers, concessionaires, uh, counties, uh, little cities. Uh, I represented them all. And Lord, just a minor correction. Sometimes I sued the federal government on behalf of my client. And sometimes I joined on the side of the federal government saying, you know what? Uh, my client believes the federal government got this right, and therefore uh, the government's position should be upheld. So yeah, sometimes I challenged government, sometimes I did. And I got a call from Secretary Bernhardt. I was pumping gas at the King Supers, and uh, my phone rang as David Bernhardt, and he said, I'd like you to come back and head up the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, that was a unique opportunity for me, and so I jumped at it, obviously. I love what the president's doing. I think the president's got it right. He wants to grow the economy. He wants to provide jobs for Westerners. And at the same time, he knows we need to increase recreational opportunities. Laura, if there's one thing we learned during the virus, and we've learned lots of things, I hope we've learned lots of things. But I know at the Bureau of Land Management, one of the things we've learned is that the American people want to come out on BLM land and recreate. Visitations at our BLM sites all across the West, all across the country, have just skyrocketed. And so we know that when the pandemic is over next summer, I think they're going to come back and we'll be prepared uh, to receive them. Right. So you were here out in New Mexico, you're in Santa Fe right now, and you went out to Chaco Canyon. What was that visit like? And were you, who were you meeting with up there? Were you able to meet with some of the tribal officials and tribal communities as well? I, I did not. I, uh, I, I, I was just with federal officials uh, my whole time. Uh, I was, uh, we drove on down to the, uh, to the Chaco Canyon, went into the park. I'm just mightily impressed with it. It's just uh, awe-inspiring, uh, the technology uh, that was put in place uh, by, uh, by uh, folks of antiquity and uh, the creativity. And I, I, I'm just awestruck that the timbers that were used were collected from 40 and 60 miles away, uh, that the stones that were used were from up on top of the mesa and had to be you know, carved out of stone there and then hiked down and put in place. Uh, you can't help but be impressed with it. And uh, it's uh, uh, a really a, a wonderful place. And I understand it's, uh, it's quite sacred and uh, significant uh, to, to uh, the people of the American Indian community, and I respect that. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's locked in stone for us, uh, that we, uh, there are reasons why we have these parks established and we have to protect those things. So there has been a lot of controversy over the years with respect to the BLM's leasing for oil and gas development around the Chaco Canyon area and tribal communities and tribal governments have really pushed back against that. I'm wondering, how, um, how the agency can incorporate those concerns into moving forward with leasing, especially as we see um, in the San Juan Basin, the demand for natural gas and oil and development issues are really kind of on the decline right now. We didn't start this, uh, as you know, uh, we didn't start this process yesterday or even last year. This is a process that began back in 2014 with scoping meetings. We had scoping meetings. We had about 1,800 people involved. We extended the comment period for that. Uh, then we had more scoping meetings in 2016. We had about 18,000 uh, comments. We extended the comment period for that. And then uh, working together, this is a unique uh, resource management plan. We're working hand in glove with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, this is a, a, a BIA, BIA does not have a resource management plan. We put one together with the BIA. We're working hand in glove. Uh, uh, Assistant Secretary Tara Sweeney has been a magnificent in her support of our efforts to get it right. We, uh, we 
we finalized, put out a draft on the 28th of February, and then we opened up comment periods. Uh, we had a comment period going, and then, uh, of course, the virus hit, and it was particularly devastating to Navajo Nation. We understand that. Uh, and so uh, the secretary met with tribal leaders, uh, heard their concerns, and said, okay, let's extend the comment period. And we did not have public meetings because of the virus, uh, so we had uh, Zoom meetings. We met, just like you and I are meeting, with as many people as we could. We had uh, five meetings. Uh, by, via Zoom technology. And uh, then after the comment period was extended, we had more Zoom meetings because one of the things we concluded in that first meeting was there were a lot of misconceptions and we didn't have our subject matter experts online to talk to the people and say, explain stuff and say, hey, this is really what we're doing. It's not that, it's not what you've been hearing, it's something else. And uh, so uh, we had our subject matter experts on and then the president of the Navajo Nation said, hey, why don't you go on radio? And so we went on radio and that was very, very successful. And so we're very pleased with the, the amount of participation we've had. Obviously, you know, uh, you referenced it. We've uh, been, I won't say overwhelmed, but we, we've got a lot of comments. People are really uh, invested in this. They have, uh, they're passionate about it. We get that. And we're gonna look at hard at it. But we also recognize that there are a lot of T's there. Uh, they have a property right. They have an interest in developing their resources. And so I'm, I'm not going to speculate with regard to uh, uh, the future of the oil and gas industry and what, you know, what's going to work and what people are interested in. Uh, our job is to make resources available uh, and to allow, uh, uh, allow people to uh, make use of those uh, opportunities uh, consistent with protecting uh, the, the resources that were uh, obligated by Congress to protect. So down in the Permian Basin, the BLM's recent lease sale, um, you know, definitely um, the bids were significantly lower than they were before COVID. And we're seeing up in the San Juan Basin a lot of the larger oil and gas companies have moved out of that basin. I think right now there's about 30,000, 33,000 wells in the San Juan Basin in New Mexico, and only about 20,000 of those are active. Global forecasters are saying that the oil and gas industry is not going to be rebounding from this current downturn, that the world has, has changed for various reasons. And the, the BLM is certainly a multi-use agency land agency, but certainly here in New Mexico, oil and gas is a really important part of the BLM. I'm curious how you see the agency changing over time as the demand for oil and gas decreases. I don't know. You have a better crystal ball than I do, Laura, because uh, I don't know what the future holds. Uh, I remember we, you know, there's a bumper sticker years ago in, uh, in, in, in Denver, uh, that said, oh, Lord, let there be another oil and gas boom. I promise not to screw this one up. Uh, so uh, we understand it's, uh, it's, it's cyclical. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, a few, a few months ago during the virus, uh, the value of oil was negative. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't give it away. Uh, as a friend of mine said, every bathtub in Louisiana was filled up with oil. There was nowhere else to put it. No one was buying uh, it's rebounded. Uh, I don't know where the prices are going to go. I'm a lawyer. I do know that Congress has asked us to increase wind energy and solar energy and geothermal energy, and we've done that. Uh, last December, I went uh, to where I went to law school, went out to Medicine Bow, Wyoming, and, uh, and toured the area that's going to be a real huge development for, uh, for wind power and a perfect place for wind power because the wind never stops up there. And so Oregon and Washington, California said, send us wind power and we're at the BLM, we're gonna send them wind power. We just created one of the biggest solar arrays down near Las Vegas, uh, I mean, green lighted it, uh, the Gemini project in the history of the country, a billion dollar project on BLM lands. And so we're looking for that. So the president's committed to an all of the above energy program and uh, we're getting that done at the Bureau of Land Management. 
So you mentioned wildfires earlier. One of the most important issues that New Mexicans are facing and concerned about is climate change. And I'm curious how your agency um, is addressing climate change, both on the mitigation side of controlling greenhouse gases and looking ahead to minimize impacts, you know, whether that's to water resources or ranch lands and, and certainly wildfire season. 80% of fires are caused by humans. 80% of fires are caused by humans. Uh, we're burning up uh, about 7 million acres today in this country, a lot of it in California and Oregon. And again, 80% of those are caused by human beings. You know, Congress tells us what to do. Congress writes the laws. And uh, as Secretary Bernhardt has said often, I've got a lot of laws. I've got 30, 40, 50 laws sitting on my desk that say, Mr. Secretary, you shall. The Secretary shall. I don't have any that says the Secretary shall solve climate change. So we respond to what the Congress tells us to do. Now, that being the fact that we understand that we have fuels out on the uh, countryside. We're seeing that in California and practically everybody's talking about it. Uh, you know, we, if we cleared the, a lot of this out, there wouldn't be things to burn. And uh, the Bureau of Land Management, we were tasked by the president last fiscal year. He said, clear out 600,000 acres of hazardous fuels that will burn during the next fire. And so we did better than that. We cleared out 846 thousand acres of hazardous fuels. And so that's what we're trying to do. You know, Laura, we spend like this on fire and we spend like this by reducing hazardous fuels. And we believe the numbers ought to be like that. So uh, that's, that's what we're trying to do with regard to fire. Okay. Deputy Director, thank you so much for joining New Mexico in Focus. We really appreciate it. Well, it's great to be with you. All right, time now to head back to the line again with Laura Sanchez and Merritt Allen and Dave Mulryan. Always happy to have all of them here. Uh, another story that's been in the headlines a lot of late is the census 2020 count. As there was supposed to be a deadline at the end of September, it had been pushed up and uh, courts ruled late in the month that it would continue through the end of October but here in New Mexico, we have one of the lowest response rates in the country. So people are scrambling to figure out how we get everybody counted. If you don't already know, it's super important. The census, you can do it online or on the phone. It doesn't take very long at all, but it is so crucial in how many federal dollars come our way for programs. It, it's important in terms of how legislative districts get uh, drawn for the next 10 years. Uh, the gerrymandering process we've talked a lot about on the show. Really important that folks fill out the census. So if you haven't already, uh, please, we encourage you to do that. And here we'll hear some more from the line about why that is so important and what the strategy is to try to get that response rate up in the waning weeks of the census count for 2020. One of the myriad ways in which COVID-19 has upset the neatly stacked apple cart of our lives can be found by looking at the U.S. Census, which is in crisis mode here in New Mexico. The state's response rate has lagged expectations, and that's potentially devastating news for a state like ours that very much relies heavily on federal government money. And Dave O'Ryan, there's sort of a visceral tie between census response and something close to your heart, voter turnout. Right. Why is it so why is it so hard for us to do this once every 10 years? Is there a similarity here? What do you what do you see? You know, you know, I mean, there could be a similarity and, and it's a bit of a stretch, but let me make it. Please. I think that people feel like if they don't vote, if they don't participate, somehow they're less responsible for how the government works. I mean, I am right. just that I'm editorializing here, but I did my observation. I've registered a few thousand voters and I listened carefully and the act of registering, the act of voting, the act of filling out the census, it is an act that says I am a participant in democracy. And so by that very nature, you are then responsible for what's happening. And I think that people just have become so discontented with government. They feel like I don't want to participate on any level. But I will also say 
that I do think the government at every level does a terrible job of communicating how important it is to vote, how important it is to fill out the census. I mean, in a nutshell, the census goes back to the Constitution. It is constitutional. It says we are going to count everyone. It affects everything from congressional districts to, you know, House districts for the New Mexico House for the state Senate. I don't think that we've done a good job of getting people to understand as part of a civic education you need to be counted because it represents what you get to have in terms of who you can vote for. You know, it, it determines how we draw congressional districts. It determines how we do city council races. I mean, it touches every single thing and it's really important. And I don't feel that people understand the gravity. And, and the thing is too, with the technology that the census department has, you're talking three minutes to fill out that form and boom, you're done. It's, I mean, it's so it, fast. Yeah. Oh, so fast. And yeah. even if you have to do a paper form and they have streamlined it, it is great. Fill the census out, get it back in mm -hmm. and do your civic duty. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lawsuits, Merritt Allen floating around now. And but to keep it close to home, here's a number I want to throw at you. It's estimated for every person not counted in New Mexico, we lose four thousand dollars. And if you total that up over, you know, lots and lots of people not being counted, that's lots and lots of money we're not going to get. So it, we're in a real jam here if, if this deadline thing just doesn't get straightened out, you know, fairly quickly. Well, absolutely. And then you look at, um, and that's, of course, uh, federal funds, which are heavily relied on. Then you look at um, the, I don't know if it's a quadruple whammy. I, I don't, I don't even know how, how many, how many ways to count what we're up against in 2021 with, uh, uh, tax revenues being down, our double-digit unemployment, everything uh, that's impacting us. This is, uh, to use a cliche, now more than ever, this census uh, really matters. Uh, what, one thing that I find interesting, um, I'd reach out to my conservatives, um, my, my conservative uh, friends and neighbors, Sometimes the census you kind of look at as like, oh, I don't need the government to count me. They're really small government, anti-government uh, people. Mm -hmm. um, this is not the time. <laughs> this is not right. the time <laughs> to put your head in the sand and want to go off grid. You really need to be counted if for no other reason than redistricting. Right. Uh, this Hello. is a big deal. This has been always a majority Democratic state. It probably will be again by numbers, but redistricting um, is a big, big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, this is huge. Uh, uh, Republican uh, politicians have been told by uh, various uh, left wing groups that they are being targeted. Um, the, uh, we'd like to pretend gerrymandering doesn't happen. It happens on both sides and Republicans who are already a minority are being told that they are going to uh, uh, be redistricted uh, right out of the state. So uh, please, conservatives, um, you may not care about government funding. You may not care about a lot of things, but you ought to be able to, um, you, you ought to care about still being able to vote for conservatives. Mm -hmm. Laura, let me read you a quote from CNN. They've uh, uncovered some documents in this whole federal, you know, dust up on this. Uh, Tim Olson, who oversees the operation, he said, in part, in quote, any thinking person who would believe we can deliver appointment, apportionment rather by 1231 has either a mental deficiency or a political motivation. Why has this thing become so politicized? I don't get what Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, is up to here by trying to shorten the time frame here. I don't, what's your guess on that? <laughs> I wouldn't even begin to know how to speculate on what Wilbur Ross right? thinks. Honest with you, um, it just seems like a very uh, extreme position to take. Uh, mm -hmm. Why not take more time? I mean, perhaps they're looking at the um, amount of work that's required after the census piece of it, the actual um, counting part, um, concludes, and you begin with the you know data analysis portion of it because it's. And, but the one leads into the other, right? The better numbers you have in terms of the numbers taken the better you're able to provide data and, and meet deadlines in terms of reports and whatnot. But mm -hmm. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And especially for a state like New Mexico, you know, I appreciate what Merritt is saying about conservatives and, and that I, I would guess that there probably is a fair amount of people that um, just feel uncomfortable with any kind of inquiry from the government at all. But I would say that probably the, by and large, the majority of people in New Mexico who have not filled out the census, it's because it's just not anywhere on their radar. Sure, they just sure. simply have a hierarchy of needs where, 
there are more important things that they're worried about and the census is somebody else's problem. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard and that, that speaks to the issue of, you know, in a normal in a normal year, I guess, a normal census year, you, know, you have a lot of other outreach, a lot of um, community organizing going on. There's people who are aware of it. They There's actually, you know, boots on the ground going mm-hmm. and talking to people in community events and going door to door and doing all this, which really helps bring those numbers up. This has been a very unusual year where census takers really can't do that. And anybody showing up to somebody's door is going to be um, potentially hazardous for their health or for the person's health who's, who's answering the door. So it just makes it very, very difficult to really reach people. There's so much isolation going on with people right now, um, mm-hmm. and, which is required because of the, the pandemic, a lot of people with health conditions. And so you see people who have, you know, uh, health problems, health conditions that have to isolate themselves um, for health reasons, who also are not going to be open to having a discussion about filling out the census. So we have everybody's had to get more creative about that. So I think that that makes it that much more difficult. And, and for that reason alone, there should be some extension going on mm-hmm. to make sure that that there's more effort, uh, time being taken to really mm-hmm. uh, crack that nut because you know we're just gonna lose out on so much if we don't get an accurate count here. And we mm-hmm. just as one of them, but we're talking about $1.5 trillion in federal annual spending that will be doled out um, across the country based on what these numbers look like. And we don't want to be undercounted here in New Mexico. That's right. Hey, Merrick, you know, this idea that it would seem politically motivated to not to do an undercount literally of the entire country. Again, as a conservative, what's your sense of that? Is there some motivation I'm missing here from the Commerce Secretary or from the, um, from the administration? I, 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 I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't get it because it certainly would not earn you votes, I don't think. Right. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, the, the, the platform that uh, this, uh, the pre- President Trump runs on is, is not a classic Republican platform of small government. Mm-hmm. Um, small government, I mean, is just not a thing in, 2020, in the 2020 presidential race. It is for some different groups, but it, it's not here. So... No, I, I'm shaking my head on this one. I, it mm-hmm. just it it seems random and also mean. Dave, your sense of how we did here as a state to get this off. You talked about this just a little bit earlier. But I'll expand on that. Uh, I was part of a group that did an outreach uh, using artists and musicians, and right. yeah, there's been all kinds of creative things I've seen out there. Right. But there's also attention from some others that I know here who feel like it has been wildly under served right. here in New Mexico, the, the, right. the push. What, what's your feel for that? Well, I mean, a couple of things. One is, you know, listen, if you can use art and artists to communicate and tell people to get to the census, that's always welcome. I mean, there's no question about it. But let's go back and look at the bigger picture. Ronald Reagan stood up at his first inaugural address and said, government isn't the solution, it's the problem. And what we're seeing now is it's taken 40 years, both, you know, the current executive and all of this sort of, Everything that is government related seems tainted. And so a lot of people, even if they aren't hardcore conservatives or hardcore, you know, they don't believe in government. It just seems like it has stuck to everything. So the census is the epitome of government. Yet it's a good thing. I mean, we're counting everyone. We're making sure that you have fair representation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but because it's considered to be government related, people are really against it. It's insane. And I would tell you, it's like voting. If you know someone who is a neighbor or an elderly relative, get your laptop, go over there, say to them, let's do your census really quick. One individual can have a tremendous impact on how to count people. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Hey, thank you guys for following the news this week and sharing your thoughts. Really appreciate it. That's it for the show this week, but it's been a busy week. Lots of other stuff going on. We want to let you know about Growing Forward, our podcast, which is all about the cannabis industry in New Mexico. That's a collaboration between New Mexico PBS and New Mexico Political Report. Hosts are Andy Lyman of The Political Report and Megan Kamrick, who does correspondent work for us, as well as on-air hosting at KUNM Radio. It's a fascinating look at uh, the medical program in our state for cannabis and the uh, push that's been ongoing for several years now seems closer than ever towards the legalization of recreational cannabis. Our first official episode came out this week. You can go to nmpbs.org and right on the front page is a link to Growing Forward. You can also subscribe to the podcast 
wherever you get your podcast. So do that. We had a Facebook Live session on Thursday afternoon to talk a little bit about this week's episode, and you can find that on our Facebook page, as well as Friday afternoon, host Gene Grant sat down with Bernalillo County Clerk Linda Stover to talk about what they're up to as the election season really kicks into high gear. Uh, time is running out to register. Early voting's just around the corner, as is absentee voting. So lots to talk about there with her. We appreciate her time. Speaking of elections, we want to make you aware that we have conversations, in-depth conversations with the candidates in the 3rd Congressional District that you can see on air and online Sunday night at 6 p.m. at NMPBS. And we've got much more in the coming weeks. Next week on Thursday, it will be the 1st Congressional District candidates, followed on Sunday by the 2nd Congressional District candidates. And then on Sunday, October 18th, we have a debate with the candidates for the U.S. Senate race to replace Tom Udall. So lots going on. We're keeping really busy. We encourage you to keep up on it. Make yourself available to watch these, listen to them when you get a chance so you can be as informed as possible when you go to the polls to make your vote heard. But that's going to wrap it up for us this week. We so appreciate all of your engagement, involvement with the show. We'll be back at it again next week with much more coming your way. But thanks again for listening. As if you didn't notice, it's debate season. Now, whatever you want to call what happened in Cleveland Tuesday night between Vice President Biden and President Trump, it certainly stretched the literal meaning of the word debate. Next week, Vice President Pence and Senator Harris have their turn at it. Let's see how that goes. Now, Tuesday was also a reminder that perhaps there is a better way. For me, I like the idea of presidential debates with the candidates sitting at a large, socially distanced table with a moderator and no audience. Now, there's something about sitting that takes the heat out of the moment. Around here at NMPBS, we're getting ready for our own round of debates right here in this studio. It'll look and feel a little bit different due to the pandemic, but despite what we all witnessed Tuesday night, it's an important and critical component of our election coverage, and we're ready to go. Now, will everyone play nice? I guess we'll all find out in real time.